Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and... Tegan Taylor. Hi, Tegan. Coming at you. Yeah. Hi, how are you doing? We're good. So you don't actually have a story within the show today, but we're going to come back to you later with the, the questions and answers from the audience. Have we got some good ones today? Absolutely. Got a bulging mailbag for you, Norman, including questions about the benefits of spirulina and omega-3s. And the email address to send in your questions or comments is healthreport at abc.net.au. Tegan, we'll see you shortly. See you soon. Now, today we're going to talk about the Big 20, our century so far. All this week, RN remembers the big events that have changed the world in the first 20 years of this century. We'll take a look at what's happened with dementia and brain health and cancer and personalised medicine and how far we've come. But I want to start with the global picture because the changes to the factors that affect our health and well-being and life expectancy have changed a lot in the last 20 years. The research which has allowed this analysis is called the Global, the global Burden of Disease Study. And it was pioneered by an Australian, Professor Alan Lopez, you know, at the University of Melbourne, and an expatriate New Zealander, Professor Chris Murray, who runs the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle, who've also been making some pretty accurate predictions about the way the COVID pandemic is going to evolve. Chris has been on the show several times over the years, and I spoke to him just before we went to air. Uh, very happy to be here. You've been doing these predictions on COVID, both in the United States and internationally. Without a vaccine, what does it look like? Let's start with the United States. Well, even with the vaccine, we expect to be licensed within a week. Even with that coming, we expect a very substantial continued increase in the death rate right through to about mid-January, probably getting up into 2,500 deaths a day and then starting to slowly come down after that. So a lot of death to come in this winter surge in the United States. Why will it come down? Is it because of the vaccine or it's because of a natural cycle? Well, what we have been seeing in the data by looking at the Southern Hemisphere and the Northern Hemisphere at the same time since really May, we have been seeing that COVID is quite seasonal. And so just the seasonal pattern of respiratory viruses mean that we expect it to start going up in September, reach to a peak in January or February, and then start to come down. What's happened in Europe and in the U.S. is following that script almost exactly. And therefore an increasing surge without a vaccine in the Southern Hemisphere as we go into winter. That would happen if you don't roll out the vaccine in time for the surge in the Southern Hemisphere. And then in the case of Australia and New Zealand, you've been pretty good of keeping the virus to such a level that contact tracing and then, as you did in Victoria State, aggressive measures to keep it from the sort of spread we've seen everywhere else in the world. Just a question about the vaccine. There's no evidence yet that the vaccine will reduce spread. The current vaccines will reduce deaths. And if you don't get a very large percentage of the population covered let's say 70% of people get immunised for a 90% 90 effective vaccine at reducing deaths, then 60% of people are protected against deaths. But 40% of people are still vulnerable, are they not? I mean, is a vaccine actually going to make a dent? We put out three scenarios each week for every country. What we think is going to happen, what happens with universal masks, and then what happens if governments don't do anything. And we will be adding to that, including in our, our base reference scenario, vaccination. And you're exactly right. We are following advice from both the vaccine makers and immunologists, assuming that 95% protection is mostly about stopping severe disease, but there'll be some reduction in transmission. 
We don't know how much. We're going to make an assumption about that. But we'll know in about three or four months because some of the studies are underway to give an answer about how much transmission blocking the different vaccines may cause. Now, we're doing this interview largely because, and you're an old friend of the health report, you've been on many times over the years, looking at the Global Burden of Disease study, which you and Alan Lopez pioneered starting in the early 90s after the uh, World Development Study on Health. And it's changed over the years. And we're looking back at the 20 years of this decade so far. Just take us back to the year 2000. What was the pattern of disease, but also the thing that you and Alan have done over the years and thousands of colleagues now that work with you, is look at risk factors for disease as well as disease itself. But just give us a snapshot in the year 2000, and then we'll come to 2020. Well, in the year 2000, you know, right before the Millennium Declaration and a big push globally on reducing health problems in low-income settings, we were pretty much nearing the peak of the HIV epidemic, and particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. We still had a very large number of deaths under age five, 12 million or so a year. We hadn't yet had the big efforts to control malaria. And many middle-income countries were right, you know, think of Indonesia as an example, would be right in that transition from a profile of disease burden dominated by infectious diseases and starting that shift towards cancer, heart disease, chronic kidney disease. What's called the health transition. Exactly. The, the sort of epidemiological and the health transition. Even China had far more, even just 20 years ago, more infectious disease burden than they do today. And so that was a sort of snapshot 20 years ago. In the high income world, Australia, Europe, North America, the profile in percentage terms looked pretty similar. You know, it's, that's already heavily dominated by heart disease and cancer, chronic kidney disease. But there was less obesity back then, there was less diabetes, and we were still back in the heyday of heart disease coming down pretty rapidly. Yeah, it was coming down, what, 2% per, 2 or 3% per annum, and that's both deaths from heart attacks and strokes. Absolutely. So it was looking very good for the high-income world, and I think people thought that life expectancy and, and the profile of disease burden would just keep getting better for the decades to come. And what's happened in the two decades since? Well, in the two decades since, we've seen really dramatic progress bringing down child death rates. In a place like Niger in West Africa, the improvements are just spectacular. You know, they've, you've probably halved child death rates in that period. You have seen just generally bringing down below the 5 million mark uh, deaths under age 5. Because of antiretrovirals for HIV and the scale up of delivering those in poor countries, HIV is way down in terms of death, real progress on controlling malaria because of bed net programs. So just lots of progress racked up until COVID on a number of fronts in the low-income world. And then at the other end of the spectrum in the high-income world, we've seen heart disease progress sort of slow and in some places reverse. We've seen this steady rise of obesity and bringing with it diabetes, high fasting plasma glucose or blood sugar, bringing up blood pressure levels in some countries, despite all the therapies that exist for them. And then in the middle income world, we've seen progress, but we've seen the rise of ambient air pollution as well in the last two decades. It's becoming a bigger and bigger issue in China and India 
and a number of other upper low income, middle income settings. A lot of positive change, but some real clouds on the horizon, particularly for the high income world. Well, speaking of clouds, I mean, what is it about ambient air pollution? What, what, what is that a risk factor for? Well, in the GBD, we have looked at the evidence and ambient air pollution is a risk factor for cancer, for lung cancer, for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, for a range of cardiovascular outcomes, including ischemic heart disease and stroke. There's also now evidence on air pollution and even some of the neonatal outcomes like prematurity and low birth weight. So quite a diverse set of effects around air pollution. But the big numbers are in places like China and India, where you know, ambient air pollution is really at quite high levels. And how much is that holding them back in terms of improving life expectancy or years of life lost to disability and death? The air pollution one is a pretty big effect. China, as an example, has trends are in the wrong direction. Obesity is going up, but still it's very low compared to many high-income settings. But the one risk that really stands out for those countries as a threat to them is actually uh, the ambient air pollution front. They've done, China's done well on many of the other risk factors. Also, blood pressure, salt intake is another big challenge for China. And so for countries like Australia, Alan Lopez you know, has been on the show talking about the stalling of the heart disease rates in Australia. For rich countries like Australia, is it obesity? Because smoking rates are at a very low level, for example, and ambient air pollution will probably not going up, but not, not going down much either. You know, I think most of us believe that the main driver of the stall for heart disease is obesity. And that's one and the same with high blood sugar. And that's also has this knock-on effect on blood pressure. And so that's probably the key engine behind the slowdown. The other possibility that people talk about is that some of the decline in heart disease has been innovations in therapy, and we haven't seen major new innovations for stroke, ischemic heart disease, the other major cardiovascular outcomes at a slower pace. And so maybe that's also part of it, but probably obesity is the, is the biggest driver. And the translation to life expectancy across the world? I mean, it used to be said that we were going up three months a year, year in, year out, both in relatively poor countries as well as rich countries. What's happened to life expectancy and the gap in life expectancy, both within countries and between countries over the last 20 years? In a country like the U.S., we still, you know, all progress was slower and there's some really interesting differentials by race and ethnicity with white middle class and poor Americans having actual reversals in, in some settings in life expectancies. But at the national level, progress was still there. And then in the last three to four years, it stalled out on life expectancy. We've seen the same in a number of countries in Europe. And so that regular expected increment is gone. And if you dig into it, it's the reductions in heart disease aren't there anymore. We're seeing rising diabetes. And in some places, we're also seeing the phenomenon people talk about is the deaths of despair, rising deaths from suicide and drug use has also been a factor in the U.S. and some northern and Western European countries. And these are young people. So that's a lot of years lost. Yeah, it makes a pretty big difference on the years of life lost. And just finally, one of the things that you and Alan did in the early days of this research is you looked for what's called best buys. If countries are going to invest in stuff, both research and in interventions, what's the best bang for your buck? Well, 
let's just look at interventions. What's the best bang for the buck in a country like Australia to get back on the road to improvement? That's a great question. And, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, local variation in that question because of the way health systems are structured and what their costs are. But if you look at the big risks, clearly there's still a payoff of further progress on smoking. You know, Australia's done a magnificent job comparatively, but that's still a big benefit. Managing blood pressure through known interventions, because it's such a, a risk factor, you know, pharmacological interventions, salt reduction, exercise, those are great buys. And there are some other smaller risk factors, not small, but, you know, not as giant as obesity or blood pressure, such as cholesterol, for which there's really effective interventions, and those are also good options. So basically, metabolic risk management remain really attractive but, strategies. But what about regulation? There's a lot of talk about sugar tax, fat tax, regulating unhealthy foods. People talk about it in any state, but nonetheless, regulation is what saved us from smoking. Have you costed out or looked at the bang for buck for regulation? We haven't. You know, regulation is usually an attractive option from a financial point of view. It's usually the challenge is political, not financial. The challenge on the food front for regulation is that the evidence on some of the food changes a lot every time new studies come out. Or, or put it another way, a new study is not going to change our view of smoking and lung cancer. But if you look at red meat and ischemic heart disease, another two studies might really change up or down our assessment of that risk. Having said that, there are components of diet that have much stronger evidence. So there's beneficial effects for some food components, fruit intake, vegetable intake. There's harmful things like salt above a certain level. And so those are good bets. The ones that people focus on on the regulatory front, however, the evidence is less compelling. So fat is one of the weaker ones other than its contribution to obesity. But just if you take the same amount of calories and eat more fat, yes, there's some evidence, but it's much less compelling than other components of diet. And that's if you look at the GBD, it, it doesn't really come towards the top. And then there are things like whole grain consumption that seem pretty compelling. So I think the public policy regulatory discussion focused on salt, sugar, and fat may have had too simple a framework for thinking about how to modulate the national diet. Chris Murray, thank you for joining us. Very happy to be on the show again. Thanks very much. Professor Chris Murray is Director of the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, Seattle. And this is RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. Let's continue the Big 20 theme and look back at the first 20 years of this century through the lens of one of our most challenging areas of medical research, dementia. What do we know now that we didn't then, and how far have we really come? Professor Henry Berdati has been on that journey. Henry is Scientia Professor at the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing at the University of New South Wales. Welcome back to you too to the Health Report, Henry. Uh, thanks, Norman. Pleasure to be here. So there is some good news over the last 20 years. I mean, incident rates of dementia are falling in rich countries, uh, certainly ones that measure it. Is it happening in Australia too? Uh, we don't have very good data for uh, epidemiology in Australia, and we're trying to rectify that. But it seems to be a consistent finding across Western European countries and in the United States and particularly in the UK. To what extent? And do we know why? Well, um, I should stress that the incidence of the number of new cases, but the actual number of prevalent cases, existing cases, is going up 
because people are aging, aging, but that's like cancer. Cancer rates yeah. are going down, but the numbers are going up. But do we know why the risk is dropping, well, age-adjusted? We think it's because of the prevention uh, of dementia with a number of uh, particularly vascular risk factors. Risks of coronary disease and stroke uh, have not got, uh, are going down. And we're looking after our blood pressure better, we're smoking less, and we're getting better education. So about 40% of the risk of dementia in general uh, can be accounted for by about 12 environmental factors. You just yeah. heard Chris Murray saying that those, some of those factors are stalling in countries like Australia. Would you expect then the benefits for, our, for dementia to be stalling as well? Yes, possibly, because we have this epidemic of diabetes and obesity, and uh, that may counteract some of the gains that we've had in the last 20 years. Now, we talk a lot about Alzheimer's disease, but Alzheimer's disease we know now in the last 20 years is not synonymous with dementia. That, that's right. Um, so there are probably 100 different types of dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common. Uh, the other big ones are Lewy body disease, vascular dementia, frontotemporal dementia. And there are even new forms of dementia that have been described uh, in the last couple of years. Now, do, do they coexist or are they entirely separate? Great question, because if you look at very old people, say people aged over 90, almost all of them will have mixed pathologies. They'll have some vascular changes, they'll have some Alzheimer's, they even may have some Lewy bodies scattered through their cortex. So it makes the hunt for a cause difficult. Difficult. I mean, in the year 2000, everybody was going on about amyloid and this stuff that gunks up the brain and people, it's one of the two things that gunk up the brain and people with Alzheimer's disease. We probably spent billions on research, billions on drugs to develop it, and it's all fallen away. We're probably embarking up the wrong tree. That's what we seem to realise 20 years down the track, isn't it? There hasn't been a new drug for Alzheimer's disease for 20 years, you're quite right. And despite these billions of dollars being invested, uh, there is a drug currently before the FDA called aducanumab. Um, it's an antibody against the amyloid protein. Uh, about two weeks ago, the, uh, the the FDA said they're going to hold off. They want to. They want. They don't want to give a decision on this yet. So it's so uh, if, if in it was, limbo. If it was really good, they would have known by now. So that's fallen away. So what's given that amyloid doesn't seem to be you know, the amyloid proponents still argue that we should be spending billions on it. But given it's not amyloid, what's it likely to be? Well, I mean, people have looked at uh, the tau protein as well, and trials there haven't been successful. Uh, there's people trying stem cells, uh, trying to introduce agents using viruses injected into the body to introduce it into the brain. But um, it may be we don't have a treatment, or it may be we need multi multi-pronged treatments, several treatments together. So, so, but the possibility also exists is that we're missing something. Oh, definitely. Uh, it it may not be. This may, not, this may be a downstream event, not the original event uh, that's occurring. And so the amyloid protein may not be the, the weakest link in the chain. There's a whole chain of events occurring. So, the, so the, the, the end point is Alzheimer's disease, but where, what's happening upstream could be something with your blood vessels or an infection or something like that. Well, people have looked for infections, and uh, so far that hasn't been successful. Uh, the bloodstream is important, and we know that vascular risk factors not only increase the risk of vascular dementia, but also Alzheimer's disease. And that, that's a much more uh, achievable target, working on things like blood pressure and physical activity, exercise. So let's look at uh, prevention a little bit and what we know now that we didn't know then. Uh, it's always been thought that if you, use it, if you don't use it, you lose it, which is kind of 
transmogrified into brain training. Is there evidence that brain training works? And if so, what kind? What, have we, what do we know now that we didn't know then about brain training? Well, it, it works modestly. Um, it works better in people who are healthy older people trying to stop cognitive decline and in people with mild cognitive impairment than in people who already have dementia. Uh, but you can do uh, rehabilitation programs or cognitive stimulation programs, and we show modest benefits uh, for people in those but they still eventually do decline. You know. and, and exercise, people talk about interval training, high-intensity training um, to either prevent or indeed help dementia, slow it down? Uh, certainly for prevention, uh, there's evidence for that. And people who are physically inactive are more likely to develop dementia. Uh, yes, that, that's true. And people with dementia, uh, you can certainly show be benefit in function as well as in a number of vascular risk factors and fitness uh, the benefits on cognition are not as pronounced. And we haven't got much time left, but what about um, what's, what you call psychosocial interventions? You talk about precision medicine for psychosocial interventions. What are you talking about there? Well, we know that one of the big complications of dementia are the behavioural issues. And we know the drugs don't work and people have been using antipsychotics and have a high rate of serious side effects, including stroke and death. And so there's been a mark, there's been a big push to reduce uh, use of medications. And in return, um, the psychosocial interventions, uh, stimulating people using music, uh, we used humor therapy in a trial we did. There are many sorts, and person-centered care have all been shown to reduce the behaviors without the side effects. But what we're now getting to the stage at is can we prescribe the psychosocial intervention with the same precision, let's say, that we use for pharmacogenomics for breast cancer. We know which drugs with which gene for which sort of breast cancer. So can we do the same for which sort of dementia, for which person, in which context, at what stage of the dementia uh, would work best? So we'll come back and talk to you in 2040, Henry, and work out what you found. <laughs> yes. Thanks Good for luck you. to both of us. Yeah, exactly. I'll try and remember who you are, but I know who you are right now. You're Professor Henry Brodati, who's Scientia Professor at the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging at the University of New South Wales. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you, Norman. So what's happened with cancer over the first two decades of the 21st century? A century which began with the first draft of the human genome, which promised all kinds of benefits for people with cancer. Fran Boyle is Professor of Medical Oncology at the University of Sydney and President of the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia. Welcome back to the Health Report to you too, Fran. Good evening, Norman. So has the Genome Project paid out for um, cancer? I think some of the biggest benefits uh, that Henry was alluding to, for instance, in the type of breast cancer and the best way to treat that, probably actually predated the Genome Project and HER2-positive and estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer were things we knew about beforehand. But for many of the more difficult to treat cancers, the Genome Project has really sped them up, in other words. So if you take breast cancer or childhood cancer as the sort of front runners, what they've allowed some of those more rare and difficult cancers to do is to, you know, skip a couple of decades and, uh, and catch up in terms of matching treatment to the type of cancer. But the question is, has it improved survival? In the year 2000, the criticism of cancer, cancer care was that there really hadn't been substantial, had not been substantial improvements in survival despite an enormous amount of money being spent and an enormous amount of money being spent on cancer care. Survival rates on average had not improved. Yes, the odd cancer 
had got better, but not. How are survival rates going overall? Or is it justifying the expense and the amount of research? It is, Norman, and survival rates are improving. We've just seen the latest data from the Cancer Institute New South Wales, and even for some of the, you know, difficult cancers like uh, pancreatic cancer, survival is improving. But particularly for breast cancer, things have improved dramatically over that time period, and that has come about because of targeted therapies, uh, but also because those therapies are easier to tolerate. And so a, a real theme of cancer treatment in the last 20 years has been tolerability. How can we reduce side effects? How can we keep people on treatment longer? Because then if they're tolerating the treatment, then their adherence is likely to be better. So that supportive care element is in a way just as important as the targeted therapies or the genomics. Because you're much more likely to complete a course of treatment if there are fewer side effects or you can cope better. Exactly right. And that means that people you might otherwise not have been able to treat, uh, older people, people with other comorbidities, uh, suddenly they became within the realms of, of treatable uh, patients when they weren't before. Have your patients' expectations increased? In other words, they expect more from their care? They expect you to cure everything? I mean, how, how have expectations changed over the last 20 years? I think expectations have changed and think goodness they have in terms of the expectation of communication from the doctor and the other staff involved in their care. And over that time, we've seen the growth of the multidisciplinary team approach now formalised across most cancers, but it did start in breast cancer. And I think the patient engagement in decisions about their care uh, has changed for many patients, and that's a very welcome sign. But there's still unacceptable variations in outcomes. You could improve the outcome for pancreatic cancer, rectal cancer, esophageal cancer overnight without another dollar spent on medical research by just getting people into the best centres. I mean, I think that you can double the average survival for pancreatic cancer, triple it for rectal cancer. I'm not sure what the data is for esophageal cancer if you just got treated by the right people. How come there are these totally unacceptable variations in Australian cancer care? That's a great um, uh, a great challenge for the next decade, Norman. Why, would, why do we need to wait clone. 10 years when you and I know right now what the performance are is of centres and so on? Why can't you, we just be... New South Wales is probably one of the best states for this, but other states are really opaque. You don't know where you're going to get the best care. We could do that tomorrow, couldn't we? You'd have to wait 10 years. Well, you'd have to clone Jazz Samara for a start. Uh, so some of this is about people who are those spectacular operators. Who so you're just really referring to a pancreatic surgeon in Sydney, is what you're uh, referring to? A pancreatic surgeon in Sydney who's got better outcomes than most people. And I think it's partly that linkage between not only is the person a good surgeon, but do they know also when not to operate? When is that patient going to go better with chemo and radiotherapy rather than an operation first? So that's a team decision. And one of the silver linings of this year, Norman, is telehealth. And, you know, a lot of barriers could be broken down by including patients from distant or rural sites in a multidisciplinary team meeting like that happened in a centre where spectacular surgeon A, B or C operated 
but he's supported by a spectacular medical oncologist, radiation oncologist and clinical trials program. Do you so think, I think we are hoping that's going to be one of the outcomes from this year. Much as we love to, make a we're just running out of time, but much as we love to make surgeons as heroes, um, your specialty, medical oncology, where you give chemo, um, is not very transparent. I mean, s- some of you are better than others, and but we don't actually know fully who is the better. You know, some people are giving far too much chemo, some are giving too little, the wrong chemo. I mean, how, we need just more transparency, don't we? in the next 20 years or the next one year? I'm sure exactly that will happen. And um, again, in New South Wales, we're better off than in most uh, places because we do get that data from the Cancer Institute. So how you separate the individual from the team that does very well, not easy, uh, but I think it will become more transparent, particularly around complications. You know, who are the people who are making good decisions, let's say, about immunotherapy, not giving that to the wrong people, not giving that to people who are going to expect a high complication rate. And so, uh, again, with melanoma, for instance, you know, we know patients do very well if they come here to the centre of the universe, Mm. Uh, but then they have to go home to where they're being looked after and upskilling the health professionals in those areas to take good care of immunotherapy side effects is going to be quite crucial. Fran, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Norman. Bye. Fran Boyle is Professor of Medical Oncology at the University of Sydney and is also President of the Clinical Oncology Society of Australia. And I don't think I've terminated her presidency by asking too many questions. They're all awkward there. Now, on Australian story this week, you shouldn't miss. It's the story of an ordinary family facing the consequences of sepsis. That's blood poisoning, not being recognised until it's too late. Here's a snippet. I couldn't think of anything that compares to this, any other illness I'd ever heard of. A few minutes can be the difference between life and death. And the frightening thing is it can happen without anyone realising there's a big problem at all. That's Australian Stories, A Matter of Minutes, which uh, you can watch on ABC iView. Welcome back, Tegan. Hi, Norman. What a wake-up call that story is. It is. It's an unrecognised phenomenon. And often people are going to see their GP and they've got sepsis. And because it varies according to what the textbook says, people are becoming much sicker than they need to be. So there's a big campaign on to teach doctors and the community about what actually are the signs of sepsis. And to recognise it quickly. Yep. Well, I've got some questions for you, Norman, if you're ready to answer some. Okay. <clears throat> Cleared my throat. Ready. My brain's not clear, but I will try. <laughs> well, let's start with Alan's question, which is actually about the story that I reported on last week about endometriosis having a genetic link to depression and gut problems. And Alan said, your program suggested a connection with depression, gut problems and endometriosis being genetic. If gut problems and depression coexist in males, is there a coexisting male form of endometriosis? Which I thought was interesting because because the study that we talked about showed that there was this causal relationship that actually started with gut problems causing depression and then causing endometriosis on from there. Do you have any insights, Norman? Well, I've looked through the literature, and in fact, endometriosis can occur in men, bizarrely, but there have only think, been about 20 cases in the world literature of men with endometriosis. They'll end what? up with... yeah. What are they? How? 
Well, exactly. So they, they end up with a lump somewhere that bleeds. Uh, it could be in the stomach, it could be in the abdomen. And so it behaves like endometriosis, but people don't think about it because it's a bloke. And then when they go in and they find this lump and they biopsy it, they find that it's actually endometrial tissue. It's tissue from the uterus. So these are not men who have got intersex or you know, who are actually genetically female where mm. you think you might get something like this. But there's no evidence of that from the, the cases that I've seen because men with intersex could have remnants of uterine tissue in their, in their bodies. And it seems that it could be that uh, during pregnancy and, and fetal development, some uterine tissue is seeded in the baby or there is some you know, mutation that occurs or there's something that goes on. They don't really understand it, but you can rarely get endometriosis in men. Now, other than that, is there a male equivalent of endometriosis that's not endometriosis? Not that I'm aware of. When we were talking about that story last week, we were talking about sort of gene sequences and that those gene sequences aren't necessarily just a switch that you flick to make someone either have depression or not, but they're concerning the way cells behave in the body. So perhaps there is something else that could happen that might not manifest anything like endometriosis but is maybe governed in a similar way with those gene sequences? It could be, or it could just be that there is, and you know, psychiatrists will tell, and psychologists will tell you this, is that people with mental health issues often have gut problems and they often have immune problems. You don't have to go the next stage to endometriosis. So these problems do coexist and are not that unusual. A parent of a child with autism will tell you their kid often has gut problems. Mm. So there are issues. So interesting. Well, this is a question from Virginia, which perhaps is a little more straightforward. She's read numerous studies on the health benefits of fresh spirulina, such as anti-inflammatory, anti-hypertension, protective against type 2 diabetes and obesity. And it's been identified as a food that can be grown in space and can even be grown in your own home. So she'd love to hear more about this and why it's so beneficial. Well, there are some trials which suggest that spirulina, it's an algal product, it's basically algae, and that eating it can benefit some metabolic measures such as blood sugar and what have you. But the trials are not very well conducted. But there's no reason to expect why it shouldn't benefit you. After all, it's, it's a product which would replace other food forms which might be less healthy for you. The one problem with spirulina is that these algae are used for detoxifying the environment. So you've got to be sure where you're getting your spirulina from. So I suspect if you're growing it yourself in a scrupulously clean environment, you're fine. But if you don't know where you're buying it from, it could have heavy metals and other toxic contamination. So there is a risk to spirulina unless you're absolutely sure where you're getting it from. That's good to know. Christina's writing in, she's soon to be 60 years old, diagnosed with endometriosis at age 31. She had the whole thing that we talked about last week, irritable bowel syndrome, have a run around, incorrect treatment for years. And she had a very complicated and sounds very painful medical history that she had laparoscopic surgery. She had a perforated bowel. It was, it was very, sounds like it's given her some severe health problems throughout her life. And now she has developed an underactive thyroid and is wondering whether this could be genetic as well. Yeah, and, and she also has, she says, in her vitiligo, which is where you lose the pigmentation of your skin. And that is also sometimes autoimmune. 
And I think that really what you could say to Christina is that it's highly likely that Christina has a genetic susceptibility to autoimmune disease, you know, as well as her endometriosis. And what's going on here is obviously incredibly complicated. And I noticed that Christina has been trying the FODMAT diet and she's talking about a thyroid diet and so on. I think the main thing here is to try and find some kind of treatment that is more broad spectrum that that treats a range of autoimmune diseases at the same time. It's above my pay scale to mm. actually suggest this, but it's obviously extremely complex and needs to be uh, properly sorted out. Possibly but, talking to an autoimmune diseases specialist, not necessarily just treating each individual disorder by itself. Well, that's right. This is the problem that you get into when you have these multiple, multiple, you're going to see a thyroid specialist, then you're going to see a gut specialist, you're going to see a skin specialist about your vitiligo, and nobody's kind of coordinating this. The GP can do that, obviously, but you also need somebody who's got a broad sense of what's going on here. And that's the problem with people with Christina's problems, is that you get caught in all the little silos in healthcare, and nobody's apart from your GP, looking after the lot. And sometimes it's, again, beyond the GP's pay scale because it's so complicated. Yeah. Stephen's saying that he suffered a debilitating illness earlier this year that the doctors said was an unidentified virus. He didn't have any medication and recovered, but has since suffered a further problem that's been identified as atrial fibrillation. And Stephen's asking, is it likely that that was triggered by the virus? Atrial fibrillation is an abnormal heart rhythm where the top of the two chambers at the top of the heart, the atria, don't communicate well with the ventricles and they start quivering and they're beating too fast and then you can get breakthrough with the electrical conduction system into the bottom chambers of the heart so the ventricles which is where you measure the pulse can go extremely fast and irregularly and also the atria enlarge and you can get a clot in the atrium which then can cause a stroke and atrial fibrillation is not nice and it's something that needs to be sorted out And yes, it can be caused by inflammation and infection. It's a well-recognised cause of atrial fibrillation. Nobody's quite sure why, but it could be inflammation which is affecting the heart, but nobody's quite sure. Right. And Norman, two questions both relating to a segment on fish oil that we had recently, basically saying that fish oil supplements for heart health doesn't really have a lot of evidence behind it. And uh, OLA is saying, in addition to the fish oil stuff, we've also talked about the unhelpful effect of statins. So OLA is saying, well, okay, what's next? Um, You're saying all this stuff doesn't work. He says you gave the omnibus advice of talking to your doctor, but um, some of us inveterate adherents of the health report are even more current than some medical practitioners. So what's really good for the heart and what is bad for it? I know LA is listening to us from Winnipeg in Manitoba. And um, so another one of our Canadian listeners. So we're getting a lot of questions from our Canadian listeners. I don't think I've ever said that statins don't help. That You must have been listening to a different show. Statins are cholesterol-lowering medications. And if you've got high global risk of heart disease, of a heart attack or stroke in the next five or 10 years, then that's a good argument for being on statins. So the argument over statins is if, you, if all you've got is a slightly raised cholesterol level and you're fine, your blood pressure is down, you're not smoking, there's no strong family history, etc., then just taking a statin is probably not going to do you much good. 
So statins are really reserved for people where you add up your risk. So your blood pressure's up a bit. You might have been a smoker. You've got a family history. Your HDL, the good form of cholesterol, is down a bit. You can find these risk scores. So in Canada, it will be the Heart Foundation in Canada. And the Heart Foundation in Australia has a risk, a risk measure where you can actually measure your own risk. I think it's called cvdcalculator.org or something like that. We'll have the link on the Health Reports website. But you can go in and you work out your risk. And if your risk is a certain percentage over the next five or ten years, then you should probably be on a statin, you should probably be on a blood pressure-lowering medication, and they definitely do benefit. So fish oil, what we were talking about last time, I think it was last week, was that people of high risk of heart disease, which is just the people you would assume that fish oil is going to help, didn't help, made no difference to their heart risk. And in fact, there was an increased risk of, speak of the devil, atrial fibrillation. So there was some harm. And it's one of the first studies to show that there may be harm from fish oil. So what works here is general prevention. Don't smoke, keep your weight down, get exercise, at least 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise where you can't have a chat and a gossip. You're actually a bit out of breath. And moderate exercise means different things to different people. So if you're unfit, a brisk walk will be moderate exercise and you'll find that challenging, but eventually you'll be able to walk faster and faster as you get fitter and fitter. So if it feels moderate, it is moderate. And a diet which is mostly plant-based, doesn't have a lot of red meat, and you watch your portion control, those are the sorts of things that are really good for your heart health. And then if you are still at high risk, then statins, blood pressure medications, and if you've had a coronary event, low-dose aspirin. And my advice to you, uh, OLA, is if you're struggling with the time that the Health Report is broadcasting Canada, you can listen to us anytime, wherever you get your podcasts. Indeed. And I promised you two questions about fish oil, Norman. David's also asking about, we were sort of saying fish oil tablets, not much evidence, but what about eating oily fish in their natural form? That's what's got proven benefit. So whole fish, at least twice a week, is associated with a lower coronary risk. Probably because of, and we spoke about this a few, quite a few weeks ago, is that whole food has chemical reactions going on in it and stuff that's working together that we probably don't have any idea of to give you a benefit that's beyond just the individual omega-3 fatty acids. And eating fish twice a week means that for those two nights a week, you're not eating red meat or stuff that's got a high saturated fat content. So oily fish has been shown to be of benefit more than fish oil supplements themselves. Well, that's all of the questions I've got for you today, Norman. But listeners, if you have things that you want us to talk about for you, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next time. See you then.